Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our uh, school-age um, kiddos to the back. Um, who's teaching them today? Okay. Phillips, Deloach is in the back. That's a crew right there. All right. While they're doing that, let me invite you to turn in your uh, Bibles, if you brought them, to uh, John chapter 15. Um, we're starting a new uh, four- or five-week series today, kind of bridging um, the gap um, between finishing Galatians, we did a little Easter thing uh, series. We're going to do a few weeks on what the foundation of the church is, what the purpose of the church is, how it looks like in our body. Um, and then um, sometime this summer we'll move into starting uh, the book of Proverbs. So we're going to look at John 15 today and really the shift that has taken place, not maybe intentionally, but I think we've seen it, and we see it in Scripture too, that there's this shift, unintentional shift, and not a healthy shift from abiding to performing, from abiding to performing. And so we're going to talk about today, hopefully, um, how to switch that back around, that the Christian life is not one that's based on performance, of how well we do, of, uh, of what we have to earn, and how well we prove ourselves, that, we, uh, that we're telling some kind of story in here about how holy or deserving of salvation we are. It's not about performance. It's about obedience and abiding with Jesus that leads to obedience. So what I think that's happened, and this is what um, uh, Ephesians uh, 3 talks about. Let me just read this passage. It's not on the screen. Ephesians 3 says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church. Through the church, this great gospel, this manifold wisdom of God, as Paul calls it in the book of Ephesians. Through the church, the gospel may be seen to the watching world. And that's why we're here today, right? The, 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 this local church, this local expression of these people that we've covenanted together, that we're going to walk this Christian walk together, that the local church should be a picture to the watching world of what it looks like to really follow Jesus. So we know who God is through seeing Jesus. It says in, in uh, Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. We know who Jesus is through the revealed word of God to us. And then the Bible says that the watching world would know who Jesus is or what it means to follow Jesus by looking at the local church. That the local church should be this display case of forgiveness and of justice and of what it means to walk in a manner of grace. That we would be um, Jesus in the flesh. That's what it means to be a Christian, this little Christ. So all around the world today, you should be able to look at these expressions of people meeting in the local church. And they should just, you should walk out with like, oh, that, that's, how, that's what Jesus is like. But somehow, I feel like we've drifted off course because I've been involved in a lot of churches, and I think sometimes it's true of even our local body that we're the furthest thing from Jesus or we're not an accurate depiction of who Jesus really is. On the inside of your little connection uh, guide, there's these ideas of cultures. We used to put our core values in there, and they just didn't, 
They just didn't have a lot of, uh, they, they were just words. I don't think they meant anything. So that's what we started asking and praying through last year about this time. Like, what does it really look like for the people of God to really live out God's call in our life? As God continues to change us, what does that look like in a local body? And that's where we've come up with some of those, and there's many more of those. But this culture of joy, and the culture of justice, and this culture of grace, and hospitality, and on and on we could go. But I feel like the church today, certainly the church in the the West and in even our church in a way that we've experienced some mission creep. We set the goal, we set the target to fulfill the Great Commission, but slowly and surely we've kind of drifted. And the danger is for us to notice where we've drifted and to, um, to recite the scope in so that we know exactly what we're shooting at. I feel like what a lot of churches have done is not, not recite the scope in to the, to the right target. They've just drawn another target. And I think that would be a great mistake for us. It doesn't take very much to get off course. Even a mere one degree variance makes such a huge difference. That's why it's so important for us to maintain this ruthless focus and devotion to our primary mission and a willingness for us as a church to do whatever it takes to realign with it. Or it won't be long till we're headed off in the wrong direction, maybe without even knowing it. A flight from San Francisco to Los Angeles would miss the airport by six miles at a one-degree variance. A seemingly tiny hundredth-degree variance would put your plane in the Pacific Ocean a half mile off course. When it comes to alignment and mission, little things really matter. Now, Jesus gave us the target. He gave us the mission as his church. It's crystal clear, not the least bit ambiguous. We are to make disciples among all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. To do that, we have to align and constantly realign our local church, our individual lives, our community groups, our huddles, our families towards that task. We ask ourselves in staff meeting all the time, are we really fulfilling the Great Commission? Are we really seeing disciples made? If not, we got to go back to the drawing board. And here's part of the danger is we could, is inertia might take us too far past it. That, that we've got this momentum going and we see some things happening, but we could be headed in the wrong direction. Obviously, This doesn't mean this passage, the Great Commission, that everyone's supposed to pack up and head overseas, although some do and some continue to do, and we're praying God calls more people out of our church to do that. It doesn't mean that we're all called to pastor a church full-time, but we pray for that to happen as well. But it does mean that every one of us is called to contribute to this cause, every member a missionary. We're all supposed to play our part. We're all supposed to use our spiritual gifts. We're all supposed to fulfill all our calling so that together we can make God's glory known, reaching the lost and discipling the lost towards becoming disciple makers. And unfortunately, as we kind of pan back, we've had some mission creep. A series of subtle shifts of focus have thrown us off course. I heard this term first time at a leadership conference 10 years ago. It's a political term that they started using on the news in the 90s. But it describes well what happens to any church what it happens to a lot of our lives over time if we don't carefully evaluate and make mid-course corrections along the way. I see this drift in my own family. I see this drift in my own heart, especially this time of year we're close to the end of school. That's like the chant that we're making in our house. We're almost there. 
If we can just hold on. We got, you know, whatever, you know, 19 days left or however many it is. We're like counting it down. But sometimes even in that, we could shift our focus towards a goal that really has no eternal impact. The goal should not be, man, if we can just finish this year. The goal should be every day, if we can make God's glory known in the places where he's planted us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, the schools we go to, the ball teams that we're on, our extended networks. Now, I'm not saying that we're not trying to reach the lost and disciple uh, and make disciples. We are. I think most people in our local congregation genuinely wants to fulfill the Great Commission. They work at it. They have pure hearts. They have the best of intentions, but like a pilot trying to fly from San Francisco to New York with an aired flight plan, some of us keep missing the landing strip. I'm also not saying that we're not accomplishing this mission on some level. We are, and people are coming to faith. It was amazing a couple of weeks ago um, to celebrate baptism. We got another one of those coming in three or four weeks. Lives are being changed. Disciples are being made. Maybe not as effectively as we could. As one writer puts it, it's as if most of us were trying to fight the spiritual battle with one hand tied behind our backs. So over the next few weeks, I want to look at this, this mission creep that has occurred, and let's realign our focus to what God has really called us to do and the power that he's equipped us with to accomplish the mission he's put before us. I want to examine these subtle shifts so that we might not fall into some sort of rut. And again, like I said, this first shift is from abiding to performing, and we need to flip that back around. When you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at his followers, you look at the picture of the early church, you see that people live these compelling lives, lives that were in some ways contagious to the watching world. God expects us to be spiritually contagious. He desires that those who hang around us would see a compelling illustration of what life was meant to be like. This was the point of the message of Jesus in Matthew 5. He said, you're a city on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He says, let your light so shine before others so that when they see your good works, that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That they don't see your good works and give glory to you. Man, you are just killing it, Luke. You are just killing it. No, they shouldn't say that. That they, when they see your good works, that they would glorify our Father in heaven. But when we spend any time in the church, many times we see something else. And what we see doesn't, isn't contagious to the watching world. It doesn't draw people in. Many times it repels them. Now those who love darkness will always reject and ridicule those who bring the light. Always. That's nothing new. It shouldn't be a surprise to us when we are rejected and persecuted. It happened to Jesus. It happened to the early church and it will happen to us. But at the same time, as Jesus and the early church were being persecuted, they were also drawing people to themselves. They were drawing people to Jesus. They were so contagious, so much so that the church exploded with gross, despite fierce Roman and Jewish and satanic oppression. So what's happened today? When we look at the early church, the followers of Jesus, at least three things were increasingly Clear, Larry Osborne writes this in the book called Sticky Church. When you look at the early church, you see these three things. That evangelism was natural. That people's lives were visibly changed. And that the communities they lived in were made better. 
Evangelism was natural. People's lives visibly changed. The communities they lived in were made better. So I ask us this question, what has happened? How has the spirit of religion set in over our churches, so much so that most churches today are far from accomplishing the mission of God? Most churches today aren't every member a missionary. It's we're going to hire the right staff. They're going to be the, the superstars that are going to go do it. We're just going to tie so we can pay their salaries and fund the mission budget. And that is the furthest thing from the gospel. What has happened? That most of the world finds the Christian church repulsive instead of compelling. Well, I would argue that one of the first things that's happened is the shift from abiding to performing. It's a shift that has happened, and maybe it's part of my curse. I get caught up in this uh, hamster wheel all the time, moving from abiding with Jesus, spending time with him, and from that outflows or overflows obedience into this performance mentality. Spiritual fruit is the result of spiritual roots. But growing deep in spiritual roots is not a quick process, and in a culture where we want things quickly, Many of us have bought into the lie that we can have spiritual fruit with all of the work of cultivating deep roots. We have a fruit problem, and that's just symptomatic of a root problem. But fixing the root system, again, is a painful process. Most of us would just rather use cardboard fruit. I want us to be really careful here that we don't head off in the wrong direction and get a few miles past it only to know that we've been headed towards a wrong target. I think a lot of us have switched out being called to Jesus for being called to a to-do list. We've placed being who we are, we've replaced being who we are with doing what we do. And that subtle change changes everything. The entire story of God rests along this specific narrative plot. Who God is, his being, led to what he did, sent Jesus to die for us. And we know who God is and his heart for us by seeing what he did through Jesus. And because of what Jesus did for me, that leads to who I am. It leads to my real identity, adopted as a son of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out and participate in the mission of God. Who I am as an adopted son leads to what I do. Identity always precedes obedience. At least it should, as Scripture talks about. I know you think that this is semantics, but don't. This is everything in the Christian life. When we look back at this early church, we see that this evangelism was natural, that people's lives were being changed at this radical pace, and that communities they lived in were being made much better. So much so, and I've referenced this book many times, Christian Smith did a, uh, a great work studying the early church, that when the plagues early on in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, when plagues invaded what's now the Middle East, people would... Um, ostracized their own family, put them outside the cities. There would be no one there to take care of them. They were sent there just to die, except for the Christians. A long line of Christians, most of them died from the very same plague that, you know, was so contagious, so much so that these historians begin to write, what motivates these Christians? So much so that even emperors begin to write, what motivates these Christians in the very face of death to be filled with grace and compassion and hospitality? 
It's because they weren't trying to perform. They were spending time with Jesus. And that is who Jesus was, and that is what Jesus did, and that is what we should be living like as we spend time with him. All of this was the result of an actual encounter with the life and power of Jesus. And if we try to manufacture it, it will always be inauthentic and powerless. And our own power, apart from Jesus, working from the to-do list, evangelism sounds like a multi-level marketing scheme. Nobody wants to do that. People's lives only change in the public eye, but no real transformation. And communities aren't necessarily any better, just more legalistic. Do you see this? Do you see the difference? Jesus never called us to performance. He called us to himself. He invited us to abide with him. Look at John 15 with me. Start in verse 1. Jesus just... A week from crucifixion gave this little lesson. And I feel like it's part of the backbone of all the Christian life. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. We see Jesus puts that in there in verse 3 so we would know this is not about performing and earning his acceptance. He said, you're already clean. This is not about performance anymore. You're not being called to a to-do list. This is what you're called to. Look at verse 4. Abide in me. Maybe your passage says remain in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branch, branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear, here it is again, much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I love this. I I love, look at the result of spending time with Jesus, just real quickly. Look at the descriptions here. That God would be glorified. That you would bear much fruit, not a little fruit. We're not talking about trying to strain a grape out here. This is not like like a little thing. That you would bear much fruit. And ultimately that you would have joy, and not just a little joy, but you would have the very joy of Jesus, and that your joy would be full. You would have the fullness of joy. Bearing much fruit, glorifying, glorifying the Father through you being made disciples, and you're, you having the fullness of joy. This is the promise that Jesus gives his followers. And this is, should be the definition of the church. 
Now, I know we're not perfect, and if any one of you is perfect, then, 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 then you know, I need to meet you, right? We're all, none of us are even mature. We're all maturing in this. We're all growing in this. But the environment of the local church should reflect those things, that we would have a fullness of joy when we abide with Jesus, that we would be this increasingly uh, overwhelming fullness of joy, James would even say, hey, Eve, count it all joy, brothers, when you walk through difficulty, because that's just going to illuminate all, the, all, the, all the, you know, the, the stuff in your life that needs to be gotten rid of, and that you would have real joy as you walk through difficult times. That is only possible through, through Jesus. It's the only way it's possible. And that the Father would ultimately be glorified because the watching world would see that you are walking countercultural to the rest of the world, and that you would bear much fruit I pray for us as this little local church in in a city, in an area that has hundreds or thousands of churches, that we would not have this spirit of competition with them, that we are on the same team with them, hopefully headed in the same direction, trying to fulfill, you know, hit the same target, that we're all trying to fulfill the Great Commission. But I do pray that there would be this aroma in Covenant Church when people would gather here, that we're not faking or trying to pose There would be this real fullness of joy, like fullness of joy. And there would be much fruit. Some of us would be walking through the pruning process, and that's a very difficult and overwhelming process. Maybe you've walked through that process before. That's what Jesus says, that even even the branches that are bearing fruit, he's going to prune so that they end up bearing more fruit. Maybe you're walking through a season like that. I feel like I'm just coming out of a season like that. And Jesus, with this, you know, skill of a surgeon, is pruning. And I'm talking to him, God, don't take that branch. Like, that's the only branch I got that's bearing inner fruit. Please don't take that one. And there it goes. But he's doing that for our good so that we would ultimately bear more fruit. Our purpose, friends, is to bear fruit. It's the natural result of spending time with Jesus. Jesus says, here, I'm the vine. I'm the source of all the power that you need to live out this Christian life. Everything flows through me. Without the vine, the branches are fit for nothing, Scripture says here, but the burn pile. In all of our effort, in all of our performance, if we're not connected to Jesus, if we're not abiding with Jesus, if we're not remaining with Jesus, then our efforts are in vain. The goal from the beginning was that we would reflect the glory of God to the rest of the world, that we are image bearers made in the likeness of God, little replicas of the Godhead wandering around the earth. Sin has marred that image in us. It's distorted it. Christ came to restore it in us. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in him or I in you, you will bear much Fruit, so bearing fruit, reflecting the glory of God to the watching world is the result of spending time with Jesus. It is there that we're realigned with our purpose, where we remember our identity, where we access the very power of God at work in us and through us. Again, look at these promises in these verse that we would bear much fruit. We wouldn't be a withering vine. We would, our lives would bear much fruit. That we would be able to ask whatever we wish, aligned with God's will, and we would see it come to fruition and with our eyes. 
and that we would have the fullness of joy. Can I ask us just a real sobering question, church? Does that sound like your life? That you abide with Jesus, and not that we're doing it perfectly again, but he's transforming you into the image that you were created to bear, this image bearer of God to the watching world. Does that look like your life? Fullness of joy, bearing much fruit, asking whatever you wish, and seeing God move in powerful ways. Jesus, so we wouldn't miss it, gives us this warning. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think this might be one of my life verses. Because I need this reminder all the time. Apart from me, Luke, you can do nothing. Jesus whispering that, reminding me of that. I'm a performance kind of guy. I just am. I'm the firstborn. I started keeping to-do list as a, as a kid um, all the way through high school and college uh, when I met Ashley for um, the very first time. And I thought, man, it would be awesome to marry her one day. Um, I made a list of all the things that we needed to accomplish before we could enter into courtship. As a matter of fact, the first gift I gave her was I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was a book that was... She stayed with me somehow. I have no idea. On Sunday nights, we would get out our list, and we would see how well each of us were doing. Um, I have no idea why she stayed with me and all of that. I keep a to-do list by my bedside even now so that when I wake up and I think of all the things I need to do, I write them down so that I could get up in the morning and feverishly attempt to accomplish everything on my to-do list. As a matter of fact, most of my days, whether they're successful or not, are judged by how many things I got accomplished. So I'll, Ashley, I'll call Ashley on the way home. How was your day, babe? I was like, well, it was terrible. I only got one thing done on the list. Now, I met with a lot of people, and we had a lot of counseling, and we saw five people come to Christ, but none of that matters. The to-do list, right, was so important. And that's part of the curse on my life is I just tend to drift towards performing and I forget abiding. And then I look up and I'm discouraged, maybe borderline depressed. I'm bored, I'm grumpy, I'm agitated, I'm overwhelmed, I'm burned out. I'm so tired. And these words of Jesus are like, Balm to a weary soul, Luke, apart from me, you can do nothing. That our need is not partial. We don't need Jesus as the great assist, right? Our need is total. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Our need's not just for a jump start either. As if we come to God for salvation, we get a little jump start, and then we're able to, we're good, right? Until we got engine problems and we got to call the mechanic again. That Jesus says that's not how this relationship works. Look at verse 7 with me. If you abide in me and my words in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in me, remain in me. It says it again and again. If you could go through and underline like 11 times in seven verses, he just keeps saying it. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you abide in me, if you, if you stay connected to me, this is not a jump start. This is a lifeline. It's a reorientation, a paradigm shift. It's a new identity. It's like breathing. 
We inhale his love and we exhale obedience. That's not performing. We inhale his love and exhale obedience. We can't inhale more than we exhale. You see how relational this is. This is what is so radically different about Christianity. It's not about you going out there and striving that when the great day of judgment comes that hopefully you're in. It's not about performing. It's not about trying to earn your way in. As a matter of fact, if you try to earn your way in, you'll never make it. Keller says, to be a Christian, all you need is nothing, and most of us don't have that. We come with our resumes. We come with where we killed it this week. And in doing so, we miss Jesus. There's an order to this. Christ is not saying, respond in obedience and then I'll love you. He's saying, receive my love for you and then respond to that love in trusting, joyful obedience. It's not about receiving a body of information and then following the instructions. This is not a piece of Ikea furniture that we have to diligently try to interpret and put together. It's not like that at all. It's about a person receiving the person of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, letting his great love demonstrated on the cross wash over us and then responding to that incredible love with trusting obedience. That's why Jesus emphasizes so much with the woman at the well, with Mary and Martha, with Peter sinking as he takes his eyes off Jesus again and again. The passage Weston talked about last week of Peter, of Jesus restoring Peter. Again and again, Jesus was trying to make this point. Church, this is not about performance. This is not about you trying to uh, earn, earn your stripes or please someone. It's not about your performance. It's about abiding with Jesus. Everything that we could ever attempt to do, Jesus did perfectly. As a matter of fact, there was a group of people in Scripture that we, we know them as the Pharisees who were great at performing. And they performed and they performed and they kept all the rules And then they had this interaction with Jesus, bragging on their own performance. And you know what? Jesus just raised the standard. He said, well, then I need you to be holy as I am holy. That was the mic drop. They know they couldn't do that. They would never. He just just raised the bar, you know, to to an infinite amount. There's no way they could do it. Only through the person of Jesus Christ can we be made righteous. And only through spending time with him. Inhaling his love for us, exhaling obedience. That's how the Christian life is meant to work. That's the order. This was never again about forcing fruit or manufacturing fruit. It's not about a to-do list. And maybe we've made this mistake here at our church, emphasizing the mission of God so much over the past year without emphasizing the abiding with Jesus. That's where the power comes from. In Acts 4, Luke records this in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Maybe you'll remember Moses in the Old Testament not even in the presence of God, but being able to see after the presence of God passed through that his face glowed. He had to actually wear a veil over his face because he had been so close to God. 
our lives, church, to be so saturated with Jesus, his spirit empowering us to live this kind of life that he called us to, lives of sacrificial generosity, of joy in the midst of extreme difficulty, of hospitality as we open our homes to people who aren't just like us. On and on we could go. This is radical and it's contagious. And it all starts with spending time connected to the vine. Again, this is nothing new. I know you've heard this. This is maybe a sermon that's a great reminder to your pastor as I think through this. What does this look like in my life every day? What does this look like as I practice this out? I'm going to give us some really practical things here. One of the ways we cultivate this practice of abiding with Jesus, of spending time with Jesus, of hanging out with him, of inhaling his love and exhaling obedience, being before doing, is to literally just spend time with him. According to our text in verse 7, if we're to become what God wants us to be in our purpose, we must let the words of Jesus abide in us. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. When we trust Jesus, this new foreign life enters us and alters our internal systems and makes drastic changes in us. This is why Jesus says in verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from him, our essential nature, our spiritual DNA remains the same. But when we embrace him, in faith his very life enters us. Faith expresses itself through us, just like the life of the vine finds expression through the branches. The vine itself doesn't bloom. No, the branches are what bear the fruit, but the branches have no life in them of their own. They all comes from the vine. Here's the switch again in verse 7. He had said several times, abide in me and I and you, abide in me and I and you. And in verse 7, he switches it. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. The point of this change is for us to see practically how we let Jesus abide in us, namely letting his words abide in us. His words abiding in us. We let Jesus abide in us and we let his words abide in us. Letting the words of Jesus abide in us meaning, means letting Jesus abide in us speaking. Jesus is not a silent guest in our lives Once we invite him in, again, he's not the jump starter where he gets us going and then he backs away. Once we invite him in, he is persistent on our transformation. If you walked with him very long at all, you know how persistent he is. Gently, slowly, always calling you to repentance as you follow him. Jesus should reside as an authoritative guest whose opinions matter more than anyone else's, whose commands are the very law of life for us. One writer put it this way, Christ abiding in us is interchangeable with his words abiding in us because Christ never comes without his authoritative views on things. Maybe you've seen this as well if you've ever tried to argue with him. To have him abiding is to have all his views abiding in us. If he abides, his views abide. If he abides, his priorities abide. If he abides, his principles abide. If he abides, his promises abide. If he abides, his commandments abide. In short, when Christ abides in us, his words abide in us. And what that means is that we don't just read the Bible. We don't just memorize and meditate on the Bible. We don't just listen to preaching and teaching from the Bible because we have a favorite guy we like to podcast. It means that we seek the words of Jesus as living words, 
Words that come not in some abstract form, but they come from the heart and from the lips of a living person whom we love more than any other person in the world, who knows what's best for us, who's trying to reshift our focus to what the target really is. And so letting the words of Jesus abide in us means taking whatever steps are necessary to keep the living voice of Jesus speaking with you through the words that he spoke in Scripture. It's a spiritually intentional act of relating to the living person as you take his words into your hand, into your hearts. What what would it look like, church, for us as a people to say yes to this? To make the shift from performing to abiding, inhaling his love and exhaling obedience. What does it look like to have the very words of Jesus in our heart? Not in a legalistic way, not in a if you miss a day, then, then you failed the kingdom of God. No, this is an invitation from a friend to say, hey, come walk with me. I want to end with just some very practical steps for us. Some advice on how you make this part of your life. And I'm not saying I do this perfectly at all. I'm just giving you this as an example. I could be so much better in this. First, if I'm going to have regular time with God and his word, I have to do it in the morning. The best of me given to him. If I wait till the evening, I'm frustrated. I'm overwhelmed. I'm exhausted. So I have to do this in the morning. I try to wake up about an hour before the kids wake up and... I'm exhausted. I pour me a cup of coffee. I try to kind of wake up a little bit. I normally have a few different devotionals I read from. Keller has a book on Psalms I love to read. Uh, Piper has a daily devotional. Uh, Rick Warren has a reading plan. All of those I feel like are helpful because I'm so tired. I'm not just going to break into the book of Leviticus yet. I'm trying to wake up a little bit. I read that as I drink my coffee. And I just, I'm silent for a little bit. I invite Jesus in. I know he's there, but I'm just recognizing his presence around me. Jesus, I know you're here with me. Would you please speak to me? Convict me of sin that is creeping in my life. Then I get out the reading plan. Me and my guys in my huddle are reading through the book of Acts right now. And this is just a super simple plan and you don't have to use this. I use what, what uh, we've taught before, the REAP method, R-E-A-P, just acronym. This is just how I read. I read, the, I read the word. I explore it. I apply it and I pray. And that's just it. And I write that down in my journal. I have a journaling Bible. I write it outside. I'll read, say, John 15 as I was reading this week. I read it, I explored, I started kind of perusing over, okay, what statement in here or verse or a couple verses together is the Holy Spirit using in my heart? And it was this over and over again, without me you can do nothing, without me you can do nothing. So I circled that and I wrote it in a few different places so that I would be reminded of it. I explored it, then I applied it. What does it look like for me to apply this in my life this week? And then I prayed, God, make this a reality in my life. This does not have to be I used to feel so bad in life because I, I had some mentors in my life who were just phenomenal at this. They would literally wake up at three in the morning and spend an hour and a half in prayer. And then they would spend, you know, another, another hour, you know, reading the Old Testament in Hebrew or whatever it was. And I would just always be like, I'm not getting up at 3.30. There's just no way that's not good for anybody. I'm going to be cranky the next day. It's going to have the opposite effect in my life. 
But we do have spending time. I do have to make spending time with God a priority. I feel like church, if we make this shift from performance to abiding, not only are we going to be more biblical, I feel like we're going to see the power of God released in us. And I feel like that we could say of our church, that when people would come to visit us, that they would see these three things that we talked about in the beginning, that evangelism would just be natural in our new state, that we, we evangelize the things that we're passionate about. For some of you in here, you know, it's uh, plexus or whatever we're, whatever we're drinking or eating or whatever, it's essential oils, right? Whatever that we get real excited about. You're posting it on Facebook like 43 times. And no offense, I mean, keep using the, the, the platform. Um, just don't try to sell it to me. Um, my wife, my wife's a little more of a sucker when it comes to this stuff. Um, maybe, maybe you can get her on this. <clears throat> we evangelize what we care about. For some of the dudes in here, it's, uh, it's fantasy football when it comes around. It's sports talk. We can, we just light up when we're talking about the team or the NFL draft. And we evangelize in the things that we are passionate about. And when we spend time with Jesus, evangelism of the greatest thing in the world, the real gospel, would be just, it would just be natural to us. We'd begin bragging about who God is and what he's done in our life. And I pray that that's a step that we all can take from abiding, inhaling his love, exhaling in obedience. Our lives would begin to change. Our marriages would begin to change. Our neighborhoods would begin to change. Ultimately, our communities would begin to change if we're committed to this. We're going to take communion here in a moment. I know I've gone a few minutes over. I feel like a lot of times in the church, and even in this church, even in our church, there's not this real sense of expectation for God to do anything. There's not this atmosphere of joy and love. As a matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, somebody else was preaching. I was sitting in the back, and I, I counted 53 times that people got up and left during the preaching. And maybe you all have just little bitty bladders. I don't know what it is. But there's this, this like, this is some kind of all-state insurance summit or something, and we can kind of take it or leave it. We don't come expecting God to show up. We haven't prepared our hearts for him to show up. We're just kind of just walking through the motions. And then we expect that we're going to just force some fruit out. It's just something that God does in our hearts. We don't have to entertain. We can sing together from the very depths of our heart out of this overflowing gratitude for what God has saved us from and what he saved us to. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of where the fullness of joy is just so evident in people's lives and people who are so far from God can walk in through those doors or walk into one of our community groups or be invited to a huddle and they would just sense that real life is here, that these people aren't just playing games. This mission of God is not something that we're just supposed to talk about, but we would literally re realign our entire lives to accomplish it. what Paul means in Ephesians 3, that the manifold wisdom of God would be expressed through the local church. I want to end with this. As we prepare our hearts and minds to take communion, this is this visible 
reality of this visible illustration of this inward reality that's real to us that we could taste and smell and sense and touch as we abide with Jesus what difference does it make well it makes an upward difference that God's glory our lives would make much of God this benevolent gardener who's working to make us fruitful Our transformation is God's doing, and he loves to make much of himself by making us flourish. Communion's a reminder of that. Communion's a reminder of an inward change. It says in verse 11 that we would be our gladness. This is to your gladness, the fullness of joy. God is not at work in you just to keep you in line like a mean coach, but to give you life. He's the gardener that wants the full flourishing of each branch To abide in Christ is for our joy. And then it would make an outward difference. The world's good. Verse 16 talks about that. He appointed you to enter into the culture, into your social network, to make it a better place. The fruit would be satisfying. Evangelism would be natural. People's lives would be changed. The communities that we live in would be made better. Give us some time to pray and evaluate what God's doing, what he's leading you to do, how he's spoken to you. The band's going to come up and play. They're going to lead us in one more song in a minute. But I I want you, just in the stillness of this moment, to, would you ask God to really illuminate what he's doing in your heart? Maybe something he's calling you to or something he's calling you away from. Maybe you've been in a season of pruning and you're just... You're just hurt and sore. You need God's refreshing presence just to reaffirm in your own heart and life that he's for you, that he's doing this great work in you. Maybe some of you in here aren't believers and your step this morning is a step of obedience to cross a line of faith, to push all your chips to the center of the table, to admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Maybe you would place your faith and trust in him today for the first time. Father God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your call upon our lives, for what you're doing in and through us, for the lives that are being changed, absolutely. But God, I pray that you would do more. Will you do more in my life? You do more in our church? that we would have an aroma around here of the fullness of joy, of prayers being answered, of much fruit being displayed. Father, I pray as we're about to take communion in a minute, that this would be a sweet time in our lives of remembering what it means to abide with you. Inhaling your love. Exhaling obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll give you some time to pray. You don't have to be a member here to partake in communion. We have an open communion. You just have to be a follower of Jesus and desiring to walk in obedience to him. So when you're ready, I invite you to come. I'll be standing in the back if you'd like to pray with me about something for some reason. It would be an honor to do that with you. You come when you're ready.